Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Hellman. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. And today we are talking uh, shortly after the UK held their referendum on exiting the European Union, and so that is definitely in the air. And thinking about it as a designer, I am struck by the role that what I have to frankly call visual propaganda played in defining that debate. There's a uh, uh, a poster that came out shortly before the vote that was considered um, really, really controversial. Um, it says, big red letters, breaking point, and then behind it, it says, uh, the EU has failed us all. We must break free of the EU and take back control. And the image is of um, an enormous winding line of refugees coming towards you, almost entirely male, almost entirely uh, dark-skinned. You know, it is not subtle, it is not metaphoric, it's not witty, it's not ironic, it is as starkly alarmist as such a thing could be. When it was unveiled, there was a lot of outcry uh, saying that it incited racial hatred. In its defense, uh, the, um, uh, the party called UKIP, the UK Independence Party, led by Nigel Farage, said that it's simply a documentary photograph and it's showing really what's happening in the real world and it wasn't something they made up. It's something that people in the UK need to be aware of. And it sort of is the kind of dangerously potent kind of image that I think increasingly people fall back on to provide a way of thinking about a world which is otherwise impossibly complicated. I thought it was interesting that the Independent in the UK did a roundup of how media around the world responded to the Brexit decision. Uh, The best one to me was from Libération, which is a left-wing French magazine that put on its cover a photograph from back in 2012. Apparently, Boris Johnson, during the uh, Olympics, uh, went on a zip line carrying two (laughs) British flags and got stuck. So they're running this (laughs) picture with him slightly off-center on this sort of gray sky background of a British day with an English headline and all it says in giant capital letters is good luck <laughs> right which is just I mean so yeah. you know but there's a lot there's a wide range of responses there's there's a sort of the elite response uh, I don't know if you've seen Barry Blitz cover for next week's New Yorker tell us what it is uh, so basically what he's done and Barry Blitz is is I, I think you've called him Michael the go-to guy for quick responses on political moments uh, he's got a picture of a bunch of very uh, elegant British, skinny, tall men. Uh, one of whom, the, the the featured one of whom, bears a resemblance to John Cleese, who uh, some of our listeners may remember was one of the original uh, cast members of Monty Python, in which he uh, had a sketch uh, in which he played what he called the Minister of Silly Walks. Well, here is this John Cleese-like skinny guy about to jump off a cliff. His his leg is outstretched, and he's kicked another guy off the cliff into the abyss. But I mean, it's, it's a very scary time. The, uh, the Washington Post reported yesterday, just only a day after this vote, that the British were frantically Googling what the EU is hours after voting to leave it. So, yeah. so you know, we live at a time where we're privileged for the quick response, design and visual uh, culture that helps people make decisions quickly sometimes, I think, can be responsible for making knee-jerk responses to things that, that aren't quite thought through. And that's, I think, a danger that maybe is something we need to concern ourselves with. 
Yeah, and I think actually we see it here in the United States as well um, with, um, you know, the attitudes for and against Donald Trump. Who looks so much like Boris Johnson, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he and Boris Johnson both have, um, you know, kind of this um, hair thing going on. But I think that actually goes to something that I find troubling and I, uh, as I speak, I'm more alarmed about it than ever. I find that um, UKIP and Trump and people like that actually um, communicate with their supporters and with the world at large with things that purport to be facts and in fact sometimes are quasi-facts and sometimes are frankly outright lies. But what I find disturbing is that um, they put forward facts and figures, whether they're right or wrong, and our, you know, at least my attempt as someone who is, uh, you know, on the other side is to respond not with clarity, but sort of with dismissive sarcasm. Yes, but his hair is ridiculous. Yes, but Trump is just preposterous as a figure. And you're actually responding dismissively and sarcastically, not just to the candidate, but to everyone who is supporting that candidate. And that support is many times not just motivated by prejudice or stupidity or racial hatred, but it's people trying to articulate something that they actually legitimately feel is uh, wrong and unfair. In this case, a lot of it has to do with the, the forces of globalization and free trade that have winners and losers. And if you're an um, older person who once uh, had a high-paying blue-collar job and somehow that industry no longer exists and you don't have that job anymore and the idea of being retrained to you know, run a social media program for a startup <laughs> isn't in the cards for you. Um, you're basically out of work looking for an answer and obviously the answer is some path home to the way things used to be. And I think that's really compelling and I don't think there's a compelling answer. You're talking about something, too, that really affects the creative community, and there was an a interesting write-up yesterday uh, on Fast Company Design. I think Creative Review has done a story about this in the UK, about how the creative industries in Britain, in the United Kingdom, are going to be affected by this. And, and one major sort of stunning defeat for some of those companies, particularly the ones that are growing quickly and need to staff up, is the degree to which they have benefited from staffing up across Europe. And, you know, the ease with which a student could, could graduate from school in the Netherlands and move to London and get a job will now be, I think, a little bit more questionable. And so this is really, I think, a problem for the, um, the fluidity with which Europe, in terms of its design profession and, and really in terms of its recruiting policies and, and abilities, will, will have to change. You know, creativity and um, innovation and all these things that designers profess to both uh, – uh, champion and expertly wield as our skills are really largely borderless constructs. You know, um, talented people can be anywhere. Talented people can collaborate across borders, across time zones, across hemispheres. And um, as a young designer from, you know, the middle of America who had led a fairly provincial insular life coming up um, in my school days there through high school. One of my first um, exposures to the larger world of um, culture beyond the borders of Ohio, never mind beyond the borders of the United States, was learning about, you know, the fantastic art history and design history traditions that 
that grew up in places like the UK, in Europe, and not just Europe, but um, the Far East, the Southern Hemisphere, around the world. You know, and I think if you um, are fortunate enough to go to a design conference that has representation of global design, you sort of really see that it is truly a universal language and an exciting one and a an optimistic one. And um, somehow there is some sort of hope and some sort of message that globalization can have inspiring benefits to people on the personal level, at the you know local level, and that it doesn't just mean um, you know the ability of giant banks to move um, digitized money around, but it's really about uh, how ideas can spread and how good ideas can be spread to counter bad ones. One of the things that this makes me think of is the degree to which images are iconic, remembered by the public, acted upon by virtue of being as powerful as they are, which isn't always something we can plan. But I was thinking about how back in 2009, the New York Times reported on a project that you did uh, in which you, working with the architects Smith, Miller, and Hawkinson, did the signage for a border crossing station in New York as seen from the Canadian side, in which you chose to do this, I thought, quite beautiful thing, uh, which was to say, you, uh, to basically construct the words United States, uh, very large, 21 feet high, I think the sign was, uh, that was later seen as potentially too daring and maybe a target for terrorists, and so it was dismantled. Could you talk about that for a moment? This happened a number of years ago, but it's in a way it, it kind of was a um, a kind of harbinger of uh, of the kind of alarm we have about people crossing borders around the world now and even into our own country. I think uh, any designer will be familiar with this sort of problem. Um, the wonderful architects, uh, uh, Laurie Hawkins and Henry Smith Miller, had done this beautiful building up on the Canadian. Uh, New York State border, and we were asked to do the functional signs there, as well as uh, um, address this problem of the blank facade that faced north, that faced the Canadian side of the border. And um, we had this idea of just having this big message of some sort on that side that could welcome visitors in the United States or people returning home to the United States. And I was really compelled by you know, my childhood memories of being on car trips with my family and kind of crossing a state border and how that just seems so much fun. Welcome to Pennsylvania, welcome to Indiana, welcome to Ohio. There'd always be a sign. My dad would beep the horn symbolically and we'd all get really excited that we had kind of crossed from one state to the next. Um, so we decided to put up on the um, facade just simply, and I thought completely uncontroversially, the words United States, labeling, in fact, the country that lies to the south of Canada and to which you would no doubt be aware you were entering uh, as you cross this border. And um, uh, the, as you said, the letters are really big. They're 21 feet tall. And I think um, one of the issues may have been that uh, people saw letters on they, this is fully approved by everyone. They saw the letters on all the plans and design presentations. And uh, letters that are one inch tall or two inch tall just look like letters. But boy, when they're 21 feet tall, they really look big. And um, when they were installed, the uh, Homeland Security um, professionals came by, looked at it, and said, this is too tempting of a target for 
uh, terrorists or others who might do us harm and said the letters had to be dismantled and taken down and to my surprise they were. So the letters were all taken down, put in a warehouse and now that facade is just sort of a, a blank facade that faces Canada. At the time I was sort of like, you, you think you think by concealing the identity of the country that lies to the south of Canada you're kind of going <laughs> to throw terrorists <laughs> off the track. Right, well, good wait luck a with second. that. Weren't we going to go, you know, are we sure, what, did you write down what country we're supposed to be going, you know, I mean so like um <laughs> I, I think I, at first I was sort of as I often am, just kind of like sarcastic. But then, you, then you realize that um, we've crossed over into an age where you know this open door policy is opening the doors to both good and evil, and um, you know it makes you wonder about you know the inscription on the Statue of Liberty: "Give us your tired, your poor, etc." Making a much more overt invitation, and how dangerous that would be construed if it was being vetted by by experts today. But it's not an invitation, it's an identification, right? And it's mm. not a trigger in and of itself. It's it's uh, typography. So it's the idea that typography, by just calling a spade a spade, this is the United States, you have potentially unearthed the possibility that you're calling attention to something that is what it is. Now, let me give you an example of the other that I think is is perhaps more pernicious and, and was taken down. So last week, a guy called Rick Tyler, who was running for the 3rd Congressional District in northeastern Tennessee, decided to put up a billboard in his little town that said, Make America White Again. Now, this is a guy, and it was taken down. Okay. But he said, and it's all over his website, that he's making a case, and uh, with apologies to our European listeners, he's, his references are distinctly American, distinctly apple pie, distinctly white, and distinctly middle of the country, right? So he wants to go back to the days of TV shows like Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and Mayberry, when kids can ride their bikes and you can leave your door unlocked. And he's, of course, a bigot and a white supremacist, and people said, absolutely not. But he's still running for the congressional district in his uh, in his northeastern part of the state. And I mean, this to me is comical. It's horrifying. Uh, it's the opposite of what you're talking about. What you were doing, it seems to me, and what any border is, is a boundary between two places. And all you're doing is basically putting a magnifying glass on that part of the map that says, you're not here, you're there. And yet, your, from what I read and from what I understand, Michael, your border crossing became, in a sense, it's ennobling to what you did, that by virtue of its heft and scale, it was seen in the same category as, I don't know, the, the Statue of Liberty or the Eiffel Tower, both things that are big and that are iconic representations of the cities from which they grew and, and, and were established. And so, you know, it, it's poignant and it's sad and it's, it's unfortunate, but it really calls attention to the degree to which designers can make things that are seen as triggers and that's not something that we want to really <laughs> participate in. So it, it puts us on high alert as potentially being, I think, quite uh, involved in decisions that become not only visual but political. And, and, it, and it points out that... Um Facts, even the simple fact of naming something, can be really powerful. And I think, you know, I would wonder whether our uh, our candidate down in uh, um, Tennessee, you know, when I first read that, I thought, is this some sort of like Jonathan Swift modest proposal, kind of like just come out and say the thing that everyone is um, hinting at as a 
some sort of satirical statement, but no, um, it's meant in dead earnest. And I think uh, just coming out and saying it a lot of times is the most um, disruptive and provocative thing you can do, whether it's naming a country or naming a prejudice. So uh, um, it, it's certainly something that we're going to be seeing a lot more of you know, here, around the world, in the UK, up to November and beyond. So brace yourself for it, graphic designers, and think about how you and we as designers can contribute to it in a way that's productive and not destructive. What is one promise you make when you become a United States citizen? Why does the flag have 50 stars? Who lived in America before the Europeans arrived? So turning to a lighter topic, was there something you saw this week that you loved that you'd like to discuss? Yes, in a week that I saw many things that gave me great chagrin and despair, I came across a old document from the year um, uh, 1944 that I really, really love. And the reason I love it is because I think... I have become a connoisseur of meetings as a designer. Uh, when I first <laughs> entered this profession, I thought that my job would largely be coming up with fantastic design ideas and presenting them to um, a grateful public and moving on to the next triumph. Instead, I learned that this process isn't just simply me coming up with ideas and executing them, but um, I have to meet with lots of people who these days are often called stakeholders and um, kind of meeting with stakeholders and soliciting their views and incorporating stakeholder input and using feedback to iterate new um, responses, et cetera, is really, um, you know, kind of part and parcel of what the design process involves. So this letter that um, has come to us uh, from um, the, the mid-40s uh, is authored by uh, the then mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, and it is um, summoning people to a design meeting, the subject of which is a new airport in Queens, the airport that in fact would ultimately bear LaGuardia's name, LaGuardia Airport, and the meeting would consist of um, the heads of all the major airlines who would be using that airport. So it's uh, American um, uh, TWA, uh, United, um, some defunct airlines like Pan Am and Eastern. And Pan Am, that's Juan Trippi, who is the legendary globetrotting president of Pan Am. Eastern's head was the uh, flying ace, Eddie Rickenbacker. So it was like, the, you know, the, these were like real, uh, uh, you know, uh, flyboys who were being kind of brought in to, uh, to meet with LaGuardia. And the subject was the design of the runways, specifically the airport. And um, so just the idea of like these legendary people from the history of American aviation all being uh, summoned to have this uh, you know, design meeting and provide quote unquote stakeholder input words that LaGuardia wouldn't have known or been able to utter uh, under any circumstances um, just looks so both familiar and bracingly straightforward to me so many decades later. Um, I will read the letter to you now if you want. Oh, you okay. must. Yeah, here we go. Um, Dear sirs, this is the last call on the matter of the runway layout at the new airport. Thursday, February 3rd, 1944, at my office, City Hall, at 2.30 p.m. o'clock. Come prepared to make any suggestions or forever hold your peace. 
I have heard some groaning about the present layout, which I know is not justified. If you have any cockeyed ideas on tangent runways that have not yet been tried out, keep them for some other time. I am willing to hear constructive criticism and to receive helpful suggestions. I cannot compete against white tablecloths and soft pencils. Everyone who gets two drinks under his belt is now designing runway layouts on restaurant tables. Um, and so, he, like, you know, obviously he keeps hearing that, you know, hey, I went out for a drink with Juan Trippy last night. We came up with another way to do the airport. And it's like, shut up. We're going to come in and settle this once and for all. So then he says, Oh, to be a fly on the wall in yeah, those restaurants. He concludes and he says, we will have a map here. Our consulting engineer will be here. And I expect to have the matter finally, completely, and definitively settled. You may bring anyone you desire from your engineering, technical, and piloting staffs. Lawyers cannot contribute anything. This is not a legal matter. So, right, leave leave thing. your attorney at home. Yeah, leave your lawyers at home. You know, I mean, I, I I just read this and I just hear every meeting I go to sort of has these characteristics. You know, it's both that sort of great American can-do spirit and. You know, what happens when a bunch of experts all think they know the right answer and how you get a bunch of people to agree with one thing? In LaGuardia's case, it was lock them in a room, lock the lawyers out, and don't let anyone in or no out. No napkins. No drawings on napkins allowed. Or forever hold your peace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had saying that. So great. Okay, so my thing, I've been reading with a mixture of fear and loathing and, and some interest, uh, stories about drones, stories about artificial intelligence. A very interesting story in TechCrunch earlier this week about whether uh, designers will become obsolete uh, because, in fact, everything is being automated now and what does automation mean to our field. But the most exciting uh, evidence of this is an uh, quite real, although one, I think it's a parody, uh, video that was posted by Boston Dynamics, uh, a company that makes robots, uh, of their new robot. And it's called Spot Mini. It's a smaller version of an earlier robot they called Spot. And yes, you guessed it, it is a robot that resembles a dog. Uh, this thing weighs 55 pounds dripping wet. It runs for 90 minutes on a charge. It's got a variety of sensors. Uh, in its limbs. Uh, it makes funny little noises when its little metallic paws hit the ground. And this video will show you the things that Spot Mini can do. It can climb under tables. It can, uh, are you sitting, Michael? It can load the dishwasher. <laughs> uh, something I, in my own home, have a very hard time getting people who live with me to do. Getting so humans this, to you, do. You had me at loading the dishwasher, yeah. Spot Mini. Uh, it's got incredible mobility, flexibility. Uh, it's a little dorky looking. Uh, it's a little clunky. But when it falls down, which you'll be happy to know in this video, there's a simulation of not only falling, but a staged falling. And you see on the ground underneath Spot Mini a banana banana peel yeah, so in a little now. moment that harkens back to the days of buster keaton movies uh there's spot mini going off on its side and it sort of pauses for a moment and then it gets back up and it keeps on going so this is sort of part energizer bunny part um i don't know if your kids ever played the game bugdom no 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 Bugdom was a very early video game that had a little character that was that was the sort of uh the protagonist in this thing and it was a bug that wore sneakers, giant Converse high-top sneakers. His name is Raleigh McFly. And whenever this thing fell over on its side, 
it would pause a minute and it would get back up and it would shake its head like you shake its head in disbelief and then it would keep going (laughs) and so there's something about the pause before this thing gets back up that i thought was was a very human gesture when we use artificial intelligence and robotics to engineer a thing that's not a human thing it's an animal thing or it's an insect thing or it's something that's actually made to help us i think it's a little bit less terrifying and menacing than if it were a human oh yeah, yeah but it yeah. still has these kind of capabilities you almost feel when it when it falls over and it by the way you have to read the comments after the after <laughs> where people are just crying and they're laughing so hard at this banana peel moment you know speaking of funny videos that i think have uh, gone viral uh, a few weeks ago I came across this one that I loved. It is from a, um, uh, a comic named uh, Pat Kelly, who's Canadian. The video in question is this uh, thing that's uh, for an organization called This Is That, and it's a talk, and basically it's a masterful and fairly um, viciously satirical deconstruction of what most people would recognize as a quintessential TED talk. Walk on stage, walk on stage, walk on stage. I am a thought leader. You know that I'm a thought leader because I'm wearing a blazer, I have glasses, and I've just done this with my hands. I will now walk over to my laptop. By doing so, I'm demonstrating to you that as a thought leader, I understand technology and that there will be slides because everybody knows that a presentation seems more legitimate than it actually is if there are slides. What it does have perfectly is the cadences and sort of the the rhythm and actually sort of the arc that almost any TED talk has today and I think everyone sort of knows and there have been a couple of critiques of this is that TED Talks now are so engineered uh, and and so well rehearsed that they all kind of have this um, kind of familiar melody that they follow and it's almost adhered to with 100% consistency, uh, regardless whether it's a young person, old person, regardless of the subject is, male, female, doesn't matter who's actually up there talking. Uh, they have to deliver these, these beats in sort of the same predictable way for some reason for it to work as a TED Talk. And uh, to watch him just sort of like drain all the content <laughs> out of it and just deliver nothing but the cadences, the beats, and the arc. And you know what's really funny? It almost works. Like you can watch it and think, oh, yeah. I learned something from that. And then he's even got oh, yeah, charts yeah. and statistics and the little chuckle and the sip of water <laughs> and the cutaways to the audience. Yeah, no, it's yeah. really, really Brilliant. effective. And it's also one of those really, um, you know, nasty bits of satire that actually will change the way you look at the subject being satirized. I mean, the next time you see a TED Talk, Kelly's deconstruction of it will no doubt ring in your ear as you're watching. And considering you and I are both writers and word people, um, there have been a lot of uh, a lot of the kind of uh, best and most clever sort of uh, critiques of things in popular culture have seemed to have been video these days, uh, as opposed to they do. And, and I think uh, you rightly point out that there is the earnestness. Right, it's being earnest and being spot on with trying to like never. It, it, it takes itself so seriously, and it never deviates from that seriousness. So, there was about a year ago a video that was posted uh, on Vimeo 
that was a parody of uh, brothers, the Timmy brothers, Bill and Terry Timmy, who were introducing handcrafted water to the world with a kind of pathological <laughs> attention to craftsmanship. Very, very funny. Uh, and and so in the spirit of that, I saw one this week that I want to enter as my vote for the parody video of the week, which is a parody of millennial startup that blends the new hip technology of Snapchat with the age-old 1980s technology of the fax machine. And it's called, wait for it, SnapFax. <laughs> and its tagline is, live it, period. Dream it, period. Shred it, period. <laughs> so what this is, it's a fax machine, and underneath it is a trash can. And in between, the fax machine has these little sort of uh, comb-like fingers coming out that the th minute the thing is printed and, and faxed, it goes through the shredder and it self-destructs. <laughs> it is so funny. It is so well done. In three minutes and 28 seconds, this video so completely skewers it. And the best thing, Michael, which, which you will absolutely uh, eat up, is this logo, which is basically a combination of the funny little ghosty Snapchat guy whose bottom is being shredded. So it's <laughs> like this complete conflation of these two logos done in, in just pitch perfect, um, uh, you know, never deviating for a second from its seriousness of purpose. Um, so this, this is a whole new thing, people making these, and these things are really highly produced. I mean, they're beautiful. They do not miss a beat. No, I think um, uh, in these troubled times, having um, uh, uh, recourse to a little bit of uh, fun is more important than ever. So I can't wait to check that out, and uh, we recommend these. And if our listeners have suggestions for any other things like this they want us to uh, um, pull forward and uh, put to everyone's attention, we should do that because I think uh, this is a great genre and a really effective one. Humble head nod. Humble head nod. Humble head nod. See someone I know. Humble head nod. Video fades to black while the applause continues for an unrealistic amount of time. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's program, including the video of Snapfacts. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about The Observatory or go to iTunes and rate us or leave a review. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Jessica. Thanks, Michael. Talk to you soon.